Hello and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and m in Canada. My name is Mario Negro, and I'm a partner in the Private Equity and M&A Group at Steichman Elliott. For today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Calfan Calfat. Calfan is a partner in the employment group here at Steichman Elliott. Calfan, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mar. Very exciting. It's an honor to be on here, just based on what everyone says about the pod. So pretty excited, man. Kafan, I know you are a employment lawyer, but why you're here is because you do a ton of M&A deal work on the employment side. And a lot has happened in that space yes. in a short period of time. And there's been a lot of changes. And, you know, in our area, particularly in the middle market, a lot of these changes are relevant for people who are looking to buy or selling businesses. And so that'd be great to have somebody like yourself with your perspective and your history sure. and, and all that you see out there in the market join us. So maybe we'll start, you know, jump right in if it's okay with you. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Talk a bit about some of the stuff you're seeing. The ones I want to start with are near and dear to my heart because I see them all, all the time every day, of which I call you. But maybe we start a bit with these non-compete clauses. The non-compete world has oh, always yeah. been a tough one. And now there's this new legislation, at least in Ontario, but I know it's expanding across Canada. This is kind of limiting the ability to use these type of non-compete clauses, even in M&A transactions and one of your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it was October 2021, there was a ban on non-competes in the employment context, other than for your C-suite employees. Of course, if you entered into a non-compete prior to October 2021, you could still get it in force, assuming it's drafted reasonably with respect to geographic restriction, time restriction, and scope of restriction. But after that, you can't really get them for employees in Ontario, other than, like I said, your C-suite employees. But that's sort of, I'm going to just give in my the nature of my work. It's sort of old news to us, but it's interesting because the legislation is more reflective of what was happening on the ground. No one is really enforcing these in the employment context. Certainly in the deal context, you can still get them. You can get your vendor non-compete. There's no ban on that. But in the employment context, we've sort of moved more towards the California model where there's freedom of movement. But that's not to say you can't get a non-solicit or IP restrictions or your confidentiality provisions, you can certainly still put those into your agreements. And of course, individuals that are in the more senior level employees, they have fiduciary duties at common law not to unfairly compete with a former employer for a reasonable period of time. That's not to say they can't compete, they just can't unfairly compete despite no non-compete provision. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, you can still get them, they're tough. And even when you have them, they're difficult to enforce. Kathman, just wanted to build on something you had just said for the C-suite. I know we always get the question, what does that include and exclude? And how low could you go or how high do you have to go when you talk about the Yeah, C-suite? I mean, it's interesting because like the legislation defines executive as your chief executive officer, your chief operating officer, chief legal officer. And I think a court would look at substance over form. So it's not like you can invent chief executive positions to fit within the exemption to the ban on non-competes. One way that you could do is get an acknowledgement from the individual that they are indeed in an executive position for the purposes of the Employment Standards Act 2000, but it's not clear whether that would actually fly. So I think the more pragmatic or practical approach is to say like, look, unless you clearly are sort of the top dog in a line of business, it'll be very difficult for you to actually put a non-compete in their agreement. 
the reality is sometimes it's not worth pushing for it because if it's wrong uh, and you put a non-compete in their agreement and they're not in that chief executive position or executive position for purposes of the act, there's a world in which a court could invalidate your termination without cause provision on account of having a non-compete provision in there that shouldn't be in there. It's a wonky world we live in in Ontario with wonky case law, which obviously keeps people like myself employed, which is nice. But yeah, sometimes it's not worth the fight. Like you don't want to go too low because you remember, you can ultimately get a non-solicit. You can ultimately get your IP restrictions. You can ultimately get your confidentiality provisions. So bottom line, Calfan, and I, you know, you and I see this a lot. You get a, a buyer buying a mid-market company. They care about some employee who's key to the business, but yeah. he's not the owner. He's not yeah. the CEO. Maybe he's the sales guy or the tech yeah. guy. Yeah. You know, what, what I think the bottom line you're saying is, look, very hard to get the not compete. Really focus on the confidentiality, and that's where you focus the confidentiality. Yeah, analysis. I mean, especially the, the non-solicit too, right? You have private equity purchasing a company, and they want to make sure that their investment's protected. So if the salesperson leaves, you can lock them into a non-solicit provision that would be enforceable. And the best part about non-solicits is they're not geographically restricted, right? It's just saying, don't come after our customers, especially the ones that you were working with. So you get a, a bit of a protection on your investment. So you don't need, you don't even need a non-compete in that instance. Like the non-solicit is sufficient. Yeah, the other thing I see a lot, and I you know we've had this conversation with many a client, is you get clients who come in, buy a company, you get the older operator or the sellers, they want it to be around for a period of time. So they kind of try to put a box around it instead of saying, yeah. okay, you want to work here? Maybe it's a one year or two year, three year term, but you know, it's almost like a transition plan to get out. But I know you've highlighted this to me and it seems to be evolving. These term agreements, the courts are in Ontario and other places are kind of in Canada, don't get interpreted to the benefit of the person who's buying that business. Term agreements, those are in the US context, you see it a lot more, but in Canada, you know, we strongly, 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 strongly advise against entering into like a fixed term agreement, even at the LOI stage, like you should really consider what you're putting in there in terms of guaranteed income for an employee post-close. In the US, you'll see five-year fixed term agreements as common. Here, that's a big no-no because it's sort of like dating. Like I know you, you may say example, I just use a private equity example because we do so much of that work. You know, they go in to buy a business. They want to get to know the CEO a bit better. They like the CEO and they say, here's a five-year fixed term agreement. Day one, you might like them, you know, date three, four, you might start seeing some red flags and you say, well, maybe we don't want to commit to this person for five years. And you go to terminate one year into that arrangement and you have a five-year fixed term. There's a world in which you end up owing the balance of that fixed term. So you end up paying for something that you don't even like very much, right? I think this is in the context of keeping the CEO or executive on post-close for a prolonged period of time. The better approach is, come to an agreement on what their severance would look like if you wanted to move on down the road, something that's fair. Keep in mind, like, you know, you're entering into a new partnership with someone that's going to be running your company. You want your investment to do well. You want them to feel good about being there. So we typically think a 12-month severance provision for a C-suite payable on base salary only, or it could be base salary and bonus, depending on the dynamics of the deal. But yeah, you want to avoid fixed term agreements. For those that you want to keep on post-close for a short period of time, the transition consulting arrangement, that works. Obviously, as an independent contractor, 
they could stay on, provide some consulting services to help transition the customers, get a sense of how the finances work, the operations. And there's always misclassification risk with independent contractors, but in the deal context, post-close for a short period, it's sort of an assumed risk by all parties. The other area that I know, you know, I've heard you really focus on in transactions is this issue of independent contractors and misclassifying them. And more and more, this seems to be a magnifying glass issue where the regulators and the CRA are watching this stuff closely. And I know we've seen some of this from the U.S. experience, but wanted to get your sense. I mean, we see this a lot, these tech businesses, these businesses where you have just by their nature, a lot of independent contractors and managing them becomes key. Obviously, this issue is one from a seller and a buyer. Like, how are you managing this? What are you seeing? How do you deal with it if you're a buyer who's really buying a business with independent contractors that look and smell like employees? Yeah, definitely common, especially in the tech sector where you see smaller growth businesses that are, they've effectively built their operations by using independent contractors, but they're like, hey, this independent contractor is great. They keep using them. And to your point, they end up looking like an employee, they end up smelling like an employee. And so it turns up in the diligence process where you say, hey, look, they got a workforce, I say that in quotation marks, full of independent contractors. There's likely misclassification risk. And if they are ultimately misclassified, you know, you have liability for historical employer withholdings. And then to the extent you terminate a contractor that's actually an employee post-close, you inherit some significant severance liability. So I guess the way to manage it in the context of the transaction is sometimes you can look for indemnity and post-close, you look to bring all your contractors onto actual employment agreements to properly reflect the arrangement and then mitigate against the misclassification risk on a go-forward basis. But the reality is, you know, short of an indemnity, you sort of kind of go in eyes wide open and you say, okay, this is going to be a legacy risk that we just need to clean up post-close. Is there CRA risk? Sure. I think a tax lawyer would probably be able to better way in on that, but the CRA is not knocking on everyone's door saying, hey, are you an employee or a contractor? So there's some comfort in that regard, but yeah, it's a risk. But the reality is these companies that are smaller and growing, they're not thinking about this stuff. They're just thinking about like, okay, how do I get in there? How do I build my business? How do I flip it? And then it's someone else's problem to deal with. Sure. And it's pretty easy to move them over to employment arrangements. And I always ask our clients, you know, it's kind of the crystal ball question about where the market's going and what they're seeing. But in your case, they're going to ask the question in a different way because there's been a lot of evolution and changes in the employment context and how it affects the work we do in terms of M&A and deal activity. And I want to get a sense from you, if I can ask for your crystal ball and stuff you're seeing coming down the line, because I hear different things could potentially be in the works, but I want to get a sense from you things to keep our eyes open for, from an employment perspective in M&A transactions and what we might see more of, or who knows, it just seems as there's a lot going on behind the scenes and it seems to be percolating. So one thing from an employment perspective, that's not under the Employment Standards Act, but under the Competition Act, there's new prohibitions coming on into effect with respect to wage fixing as between unrelated entities and no poach agreements between unrelated entities. So you can no longer have an agreement with another company to say, you know, you can't solicit our employees and we can't solicit yours. And obviously no wage fixing because the idea is like, well, that's just holding someone down for no reason. So that's kind of the policy reason behind it. But a competition lawyer would obviously better be able to explain it. The other thing that I think we should be mindful of is the pendulum is already far swung in favor of employees but it's only getting worse. I mean, I shouldn't say worse, but it's only swinging further. 
the legislature is moving towards more transparency as between employers and employees. And we saw that recently with the introduction of right to disconnect policies that are required in Ontario for employers with more than 25 employees, the electronic monitoring policy that's required for employers with more than 25 employees in Ontario. So that's a signal that the legislature is moving more towards transparency as between employer and employees. I'm not sure what's next, but the idea is you need to take care of your employees in Ontario. Otherwise, you'll get a slap on the wrist. I think severance entitlements from the common law, it's just always expensive to terminate in Ontario. And I think that's only going to continue to go up and up, especially as we enter into some uncertain economic times. But I think that was a bit of a rambly way of saying there's lots on the go. It'll be status quo for a bit, but that's not to say there's not going to be a crazy wonky decision that shows up tomorrow that's going to change how we do employment agreements, because that's just how it works in Ontario or Canada generally, I should say. Sorry. Kathleen, I wanted to say thank you for joining us. It's an interesting area that keeps evolving. And I, I always find, as you said, I keep coming back to you for a reason. It's because it keeps changing. So I appreciate yeah. your perspective. And obviously in M&A transactions, human capital is key. So being on That's top right. of this and the fact that it plays in m transactions is important. So thanks for having me, man. I'm glad we're doing this on radio because I have a face for radio. And thank you, man. I appreciate yeah. it. Take care. See you, man. Bye.